Wood is wood, right? It's that hard substance we get from the trunks of trees and out of which we make furniture, houses, fences, even salad bowls and spoons. Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. We know that forests and the trees within them are vital to human survival. Aside from providing shade, trees feed us with their fruit and nuts. They sequester carbon, protect water sources, and are home to thousands of species, including many that are endangered. The United Nations Forum on Forests in 2017 brought countries together to work out a plan to manage them in a sustainable way and to stop deforestation, where large swaths of land are cleared of trees to make way for crops to feed livestock. The United Nations defines sustainable forestry as managing forest lands in a way and at a rate that maintains biodiversity, productivity, regeneration capacity, and vitality for generations to come, and that does not cause damage to other ecosystems. That definition is pretty much what an organization called Sustainable Northwest is about. Yeah, Sustainable Northwest, we're a, a conservation nonprofit. We're based in, in the Pacific Northwest. We have folks kind of spread throughout Oregon and Washington. Um, and our goal is really to emphasize working with rural communities and um, trying our best to find natural resource solutions that are going to meet the needs of nature, people, and then rural economies as well. That's Jordan Zettel, Green Markets Manager for Sustainable Northwest. I work in our green markets program, um, and our main goal is to build markets for wood products um, so that building projects and architects and designers can really know kind of the people and the places where they source their wood. Um, and I think that kind of stems from, you know, you know, if you wanted to say, like, why does knowing where your wood, um, why does that matter? You know, I think people care a lot about like where their eggs come from or where their meat comes from or where vegetables come from or, or all these different things that they buy. Um, and I think that wood and the fact that obviously wood comes from forests is just as important. So we want to work to connect people with forests that are really well managed. We want to see our forests managed, you know, for a multitude of different values besides just timber. So we want to see them managed for recreation, obviously for sustained timber yield, but for carbon, for water, for wildlife, all these different things. And so we want to advocate for wood that comes from these sources and then build kind of a transparent supply chain through there that allows people to be able to identify that wood, source that wood, and then put it into their buildings so that they can tell that story. And so there's a lot of different avenues that we kind of pursue this through, but that's our main goal is to be able to link people back to the people and places and to really advocate for people being intentional about where they source their wood and how they source their wood. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here today with Jordan Zettel. He's Green Markets Manager for Sustainable Northwest. Uh, and one of the things uh, that I was reading about on your website is that you want architects and builders to rethink the design and construction process through the lens of environmental and social justice. Uh, so what does that mean? Yeah, I, th I think it really means 
like I said, being intentional about where your wood comes from and caring about where your wood comes from. Um, you know, we really want people to understand the impacts and the value of sourcing from specific forests. A lot of people talk about carbon in forests, um, and that certainly is, I mean, there's no denying that carbon is a really important value of our forests, um, but the, also forests have so much other going on. And so certain management activities can benefit carbon, they can benefit water, they can really benefit wildlife. And then you can also have those social impacts of sourcing from tribal lands where you you know that your money can be going back to a, a tribe and, and supporting that community, or you can be going back to a small forest owner. Probably the biggest social justice component is really sourcing from tribally managed lands or tribally owned lands um, and being able to convey those values because there's a lot of there's a lot of values in terms of how the land is managed when it's tribally managed and and how they want to see it managed for wildlife and for first foods and all these different important things and so if you can build markets for that and build obviously a, a value chain for, for people to be able to source from those sorts of communities, then hopefully the money gets back to those, well, not hopefully, the money does get back to those communities. And then the value is that they potentially are able to buy more lands or they're able to do more work on the ground. And so then they can implement their kind of traditional and scientific knowledge and then be able to benefit their community. So I think that's the the biggest component that I see with social justice. I think another one also is that we can be really intentional in connecting architects and builders and projects to minority and women-owned businesses throughout the supply chain. There's a lot of, um, you know, whether it's a a furniture maker or it's a cabinet maker or if it's a mill um, we can be intentional about how we connect the dots we can say okay we have this forest but then we have this woman-owned mill and then we have a, a black or indigenous um, you know cabinet shop and how do we kind of connect the dots so that those people can all be brought into this project as well wildfires continue to be a devastating problem here in the united states and elsewhere in the world. Sustainable forest restoration practices can be applied pretty much anywhere there's a forest. But Zettle points out that the forest and trees in the Pacific Northwest are different from those in the Northeast or the South. I'm pretty much speaking to kind of the Eastern dry side, um, Eastern Washington, Eastern Oregon, um, where they're really fire adapted. There's also some fire adapted landscapes, obviously. Um, California has a lot of fire adapted landscapes. Um, Western Oregon, though, certain, certain parts of Western Oregon wouldn't have been as fire adapted. Can you explain what is fire adapted? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So fire adapted is a, a forest that essentially has had fire applied to it or, um, or naturally occurring every... I think especially in Eastern Oregon and Eastern Washington, a lot of those forests were burning every 10 to 30 years, um, which as you can imagine, you know, you 10 to 30 years is, is pretty frequently for a fire to come through, to remove a lot of the fuels, to remove a lot of the younger trees um, that would burn and then to leave behind fire scars on the larger, especially on the larger ponderosa pine, um, which have a really thick bark and then are able to stand up to that fire. And so that's what a fire adapted landscape would look like is, is something that was meant to burn. Um, and that would either be natural burning. So maybe a lightning caused fire, or it would also be 
indigenous people burning. I mean, indigenous people burned a lot and very often. Um, and we, we know that now that's kind of new research that's just coming along. And so, um, and that's really important to note is that people have been burning here for, for forever. And so, um, I think that's, that's also a component within that. Um, but in terms of why forests kind of need fire to stay healthy and functioning, um, you know, I guess it goes in, like I've said, you know, and it, it does a few different things. When fire goes through, it removes a lot of those small trees. So some of those will burn and, and die. It burns a lot of the needles and the leaves and everything that are on the ground. So it gets rid of a lot of the fuel loads. Um, and then it also prevents those ladder fuels from building up. So you don't have a bunch of small trees that can build up into a big crown fire. And so what that left behind after those fires traditionally would have been a lot of bigger trees, a lot of kind of a lot more patchiness throughout the forest. Um, and now you just have a lot of overstock forests. And so when we talk about forest restoration, our goal is for people to go in, um, to do logging, to remove some of those smaller diameter, smaller trees to leave behind kind of the bigger, more fire adapted trees. So those are going to be some of the bigger fir species, but especially the bigger ponderosa pine. Um, trees and, and those are going to be a lot more fire adapted for when a fire does come through and then you have a lot less ladder fuels as well so you have less fuels that essentially like a ladder fuel is a small tree with its branches dipped down to the ground and when you have a fire come through if those branches catch on fire they're going to go up they're going to climb up the tree they're going to climb up into the crown and then they're going to jump into the bigger trees and then you're going to have a crown fire and that's when you have those really big catastrophic mega fires is when you have a fire that climbs all the way up to the top and then starts to burn you get a lot of regrowth as well that's what you know there's certain species like lodgepole pine which really actually need fire in order to re-sprout and in order to actually have them for a new tree to come they need fire to kind of open up the pine cones and open up the seeds and and make that whole process happen so um, you need you need fire on a lot of these landscapes in order to really restore it to what it really would have looked like um, like i said pre-european contact so right. and and when fires start in nature how does that generally happen i mean i think the most natural cause of fire um traditionally i mean certainly lightning i think is the most natural cause um but we really i don't want to overlook by any means that you know like i said indigenous people have been burning on these landscapes for forever and so um they were oftentimes burning to create that they were creating hunting grounds essentially where they were going in and doing these burns um and i think they were really strategic and smart about it um i've even heard of indigenous people in Northern California, I think they recently um, showed that they would burn to essentially the smoke would cause the river temperatures to drop because they would get less sunlight and then actually it would bring the salmon back earlier, um, which is kind of like a, wow. an amazing thing um, yeah. to think about. So, um, yeah. And, and so I think that's really important that, you know, I guess when we say natural fire, I think the most natural cause of fire in terms of like nature just by itself no no humans whatsoever is lightning but i really want to emphasize that um indigenous burning has been happening for so long and that's such an important thing and i think there's a lot of people that are really looking at that as a valuable tool and something that we have to reapply to our landscapes here in the west in order to kind of restore our forests and hopefully begin to prevent a lot of these 
mega fires that we've been seeing the last uh, 20 years or so. But how does holistic forest restoration affect rivers, streams, lakes, and the land itself? If we look at a thinning project on, um, you know, on a typical forest where you're going to go in and you're going to remove a lot of the smaller trees um, and you're going to kind of thin out that forest so that it's a little bit more well-spaced and you're, you kind of have the number of trees that you're looking for in a given area, that's going to allow for obviously more water capture um, on the ground because you're going to have more of that water getting to the ground. And then you're also going to have more snow get to the ground, which usually leads to later you're able to retain more snow and that's a huge component for rivers and for streams so if that snow can be on the ground and then it can melt a little bit later in the year um, that allows for rivers and streams to be healthy it also just in general if if you were on a, a slope for instance leading to a river if you have a forest that's been thinned there's going to be a lot less young thirsty trees that are going to be drinking up a lot of the water as it works from the from the top all the way down into the river, there's going to be a lot less young, thirsty trees. And so you have the chance to um, capture more of that water in the stream. And I think water is probably the biggest thing that I think about, though, when we think about forest restoration and the impacts that it can have. And we're actually doing a study right now um, down in the Klamath Basin here in Oregon that will look at forest management scenarios. So it'll look at a few different kind of forest management scenarios where you remove maybe a lot of trees, where you remove a few trees, or where you don't remove any, and where it's just left alone. And then we're actually doing water modeling that will see how much of that water ends up in the stream um, when in those sort of forest management scenarios. So that, that is just beginning, but it's going to be really exciting to see because what that'll lead to, I think, for our work is we could say, you know, when you source wood, from these types of forests and from this type of forest restoration, not only are you supporting, you know, different values related to restoring for fire and for, you know, wildlife habitat and all these things, but you're also having these sorts of impacts on water as well. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. Today, we're deep in the forest with my guest, Jordan Zettel, manager of the Green Markets Program at Sustainable Northwest. It's interesting that sustainable forestry uses fire as a tool to burn out small trees and ground debris. In addition, work crews can go in and cut and remove small trees. This practice eliminates much of the fuel load in a forest, which prevents fires from getting out of hand. And it has a positive impact on water resources. But how does a fire in a forest affect wildlife? Fire can affect wildlife, obviously, in, I think, in two very different ways. I think a healthy fire, so whether it be a prescribed fire or maybe we have a fire where we've gone in and it, there's already been a, a thinning or there's already been restoration that's occurred. And so it's a healthy fire. It's a fire that's largely on the ground, that's burning through the fuel loads, that's burning, um, that's essentially kind of doing good. Um, that's going to bring in a lot of new vegetation and that's going to really help bring bring in a lot of wildlife. There's actually a lot of places where they'll go in and they'll do a prescribed fire. And then within like a few hours, there will be animals back in that prescribed fire, kind of looking around for 
different forms of food that might have uh, shown themselves through the fire. And then on the flip of that, obviously, if we if we leave a lot of our forests unmanaged, I guess, and we have continue to have these catastrophic mega fires, um, that is often going to lead to such high severity habitat loss that you really do, you lose a lot of your habitat for your, your wildlife. Um, and I think they still, you know, wildlife are, are used to fire, they're adapted to fire, but they certainly, if you have a 400,000 um, acre high severity fire, then that's gonna cause impacts to wildlife in terms of where they where they can go and where they, where they can live, obviously, so. You advocate for what's called restoration wood. What's that? Oftentimes when we're speaking about restoration wood, we're talking about wood that's coming from the east side of Oregon or Washington. Um, and it's coming from these various different thinning projects um, where people are going in and they are thinning out the forests and they're building a more resilient forest. They're building a forest that's more going to be better suited to adapt to a fire. Um, and and so our goal is to then identify those sorts of harvest projects and then to identify a way to track that wood through the supply chain so that when a project wants to come along and say you know we want for this we want for this project we want to understand more about where our wood comes from and our goal is to then say okay well let's go in and and let's look at how you can source from these rural economies in Eastern Oregon, you can support rural businesses, you can support forest restoration, you can support a fire adapted landscape, essentially. When you're uh, talking to architects and builders about this, um, are they receptive? Are they pushing back on it? You know, for the most part, everybody is really pretty receptive to it. I think that um, they recognize, a lot of people really do realize that there's obviously issues with our forests, just with the way that they're, I mean, certainly ways in the ways that they're managed, um, but they, and I don't know if everybody obviously doesn't know about that sort of nuance, but they do recognize that we've had some enormous fires here in the West in the last 10 years, and they've been really hard. I mean, I remember in Labor Day of 2020, like, it was so smoky here in Portland that it, it you couldn't go outside and it was almost unbearable to be inside. Um, and so I think that people realize that there something needs to change. And so when we can come to them and say, by sourcing this wood, you can be supporting these kinds of values and you can be working towards restoring our forests so that they, so that we don't have to deal with these sorts of mega fires hopefully in the future um and obviously it's such a it's a small piece but i think it it does matter and um and like i said you know we want people to be intentional about their wood sourcing um and unlike a lot of other building materials you know there's nothing in my mind personally very exciting about you know oh where did your concrete come from or where did your steel come from um whereas wood you can really tell a lot of stories with wood. There's a lot to be captured within a, a stick of wood. And so we want to get back to that and really showcase to architects and designers why that is important and how they can put it into their project. Is it generally more expensive? Generally, it, it probably, it kind of depends, I guess. Um, certainly, I think it is going to be a little bit more expensive because 
if you wanted to look at, for instance, in Western Oregon, you know, I talked about those forests that are managed on 35 year harvest rotations um, that are more of a Doug fir, Douglas fir monoculture, you know, those are managed strictly for timber output. But if you're managing your forest for on a longer rotation and you're keeping your trees around until they're 70 or 80 years old, and then you're only doing a thinning, um, you are leaving behind dollars essentially. So it is usually a little bit more expensive and it, it does cost a little bit to kind of make everything fit within the supply chain. But like anything, I think with sustainability um, and with trying to really understand a tr transparent supply chain, it is going to cost a little bit more, but you gain a lot with it, with being able to tell that story. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here today with Jordan Zettel, Green Markets Manager for Sustainable Northwest. And uh, a question I have is a lot of the trees that you're removing during the thinning process have a small diameter. So how do you take that and make lumber that can be used in construction? You know, we advocate for a lot of like thinning projects um, or smaller kind of patch openings. And anytime you do that, you are going to end up with a lot of thinner trees because oftentimes you're kind of trying to build some complex complexity within the forest where you have trees of varying different ages. Um, and since there aren't that many old trees left um, on a lot of landscapes, you know, they're leaving behind a lot of the older trees. So they're cutting down the, the smaller, um, smaller diameter trees, especially. Um, luckily, I think today, most, a lot of mills are really built and they've kind of recalibrated in the last 20 years to, with, with the changing of the wood market, um, they've, recalibrated their sawmill so that they can cut a lot of those smaller diameter trees and they can still get a two by four or a two by six out of them, um, which is, you know, uh, Douglas fir is our, our primary species here out, out here in Oregon and Washington, especially. And so um, that is going to be the, the product that a lot of people build their buildings with or um, that gets made into other sorts of products. Um, I think an exciting thing that people are very excited about right now is is cross laminated timber, um, or CLT, which is essentially a. Um, it, it's also you know it fits into the category of mass timber, and it's kind of a. a I, I'm trying to think of how to describe CLT. I guess you know it, it basically is big beams that are crossways laminated essentially is, is I guess it's the easiest thing is just to Google it, but um, essentially what's nice with, with these sorts of products is that you can build bigger buildings and you can build them more majority using wood. And so um, there are a number of forests where you're cutting down those thinner trees, but then if you can make them into something like a, a if you can mill them into a two by four or into a two by six and then create them into a, CLT product, which is going to last a long time and it's going to um, keep a lot of carbon in that wood product, then you are building value in a number of different ways and you're able to build bigger buildings. The tribal communities that Settle works with and that produce wood from their lands have strong beliefs about maintaining the forest and preserving the environment over any desire to make money. I think that a lot of times they're looking at, they have so many different competing values that they then are kind of creating this chance where they're not just looking at the money making aspect. They're looking at the long-term 
longevity of the forest. And I see this with so many of the people I work with. I mean, certainly all the tribes that I've worked with, they really are looking at what is the forest going to look like for the next generation and the next generation. Um, that they're, they're so forward thinking, it's quite inspiring. And so, um, and, it, and the same is true of a lot of small forest landowners that I've worked with. They're not looking only at the money component. If they were looking only at the money component, then, um, you know, I, I think they just, it just takes a little bit of a different perspective. And so they're looking at it for all these other values and trying to really think of, and it's amazing how many of them do speak to their grandchildren or they speak to their you know, they speak to both the generations before them, but they really speak a lot to the generations to come and what it'll look like for for their grandchildren or for their family um, or for the people of their community in, in terms of the longevity of the forest and finding a way to manage it in the here and now that also meets the needs of the future generations that are also going to be using it. There's not a lot of other landscapes, I guess, where you're thinking about it in that terms, where you're saying, we're going to harvest these trees and we're going to implement these management activities, but then we're not going to come back in here and do anything for another, for long beyond my time. And so um, to have that sort of forward thinking perspective, I think is one of a kind and really unique. And I admire a lot of the people that I've gotten to work with who have that sort of perspective and idea. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan with Jordan Zettel, Green Markets Manager for Sustainable Northwest. Forests are big carbon sinks. So if we thin them to prevent mega fires, how does that affect climate change? If they're unhealthy forests, especially, if we leave them the way they are, we're going to see them probably lost to some sort of event um, that climate change is exacerbating. So whether that's drought, whether that's a, a fire or a pest, we're probably going to see those forests really severely damaged or lost if you don't do anything. And so I think forest restoration can positively affect climate change by making a scenario where the forest is more resilient and more adapted to those sorts of events that are probably going, not probably, that will certainly become more frequent and more common as uh, as time goes on and climate change gets worse. And so um, I think that, I mean, if we want to, you know, the best example of that, as I've used so many times today is, is Eastern Oregon. And so if we go in and we thin a, a forest and we restore it to what it would have looked like pre-European contact, and then we're able to apply a prescribed burn on that forest as well, um, that forest is going to be a lot more resilient when the next fire comes through or when a pest outbreak comes through, and it's going to be able to deal with that a lot better, um, which is, you know, I think a lot of people will look at like forest restoration or, or cutting down of trees um, as a carbon loss. Um, and especially like this is once again, I'm speaking to to Eastern Oregon and Eastern Washington, but when we go in and we, we thin these forests, um, you know, we are cutting down trees. And so obviously you are losing some of your, your carbon value. But if we were trying to carbon stock those forests, we're going to see them lost to a 
enormous mega fire, or we're going to see them lost to pest outbreaks or drought or, or one of all three of those things potentially. And so we have to go in and manage them and we have to hopefully bring them back to what they were um, and to implement some management activities so that they're going to be more resilient and that they're going to last far into the future. Because I think there's a lot of opportunity for folks to to be intentional and to maybe make a um, statement, I guess, by learning more about where their wood comes from and seeing how they can maybe make an impact the next time they they source wood for whatever it may be, whether it's their kitchen remodel or they're building a new house, or maybe they're an architect or designer or construction person and they are um, working on those larger building projects. That's all for now. And thanks so much for listening. Mothering Earth is also on Instagram at mothering underscore earth and on Facebook at Mothering Earth Pod. Our website is mothering-earth.com. Hope to see you back next time. Until then, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. The views and opinions expressed on Mothering Earth do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of this station.